Hello, and welcome to Conference Room C, where the culture meets. I'm your host, Dr. A, and today is the Trailblazers edition. For a long time, I haven't had to feel what it's like to be the only one or the first one. I'm from New York City, which is about as diverse as any town can get. But then I attended high school in central Pennsylvania. And that was the first time I remember my identity as a black woman being so salient, so obvious to me and others. I was painfully aware of my identity at almost every moment. In any given class, I was one of maybe two or three black students if there were any others at all. Then when I threw in all my other identities, from a big city or of a professor, etc., my world got really, really small. Not only was I in the minority, I was also not the type of minority that folks in this small Pennsylvania town were used to seeing. This led me and my play cousin to found my high school's first African-American support group. It was those moments throughout high school that I truly lived being the representative. In college and beyond, I didn't quite have the same experiences. Don't get me wrong. As I attended a university in the same Pennsylvania town, there weren't an abundance of black faces as I entered a science school, majoring in biology with a medical concentration. And as I progressed professionally, and the more I get invited into spaces as Dr. A, the less and less I see people who look like me. Now, not every black professional who has ever been the first or in the only has had the same experiences, I'm sure. But how much do we even really know about these experiences? It's certainly not the most researched topic in organizational studies, far from it. And it sometimes feels like it's taboo to even talk about. Regarding black professionals, there are still glaring inequities when it comes to certain career fields. A recent analysis by the Associated Press found that in the education field, there are seven white employees for every one black employee. In the computer and math fields, there are eight white employees for every one black employee. And in the legal field, there are 12 white employees for every one black employee. They may just sound like numbers, but what they tell us is that in some of the most common career fields, it's likely that in any given organization, black employees can be in the minority. It's also important to remember that these are the average numbers and they can differ significantly based on location. Digging a little deeper into the overall numbers in the science, technology, engineering, and math, also known as STEM fields. According to the Pew Research Center, in 2016, only 9% of STEM jobs were held by Black professionals. And of all employees, white, Black, Asian, and Hispanic, who worked in physical science jobs, only 6% identified as Black. I agree with the popularized narrative that representation is crucial. We need to claim our seat at the table, be seen, be heard. We need to enter into career fields in which we are historically and currently underrepresented. But as I forge on lately, I've been more reflective. Yes, representation is so important, but normalization should be the ultimate goal. Normalization in sociological terms is when things, behaviors, actions, symbols, and the like that are not regarded as normal become normal or socially acceptable. The fact is that still in 2019, seeing black faces in certain career spaces is not the norm. By making it the norm, that's how we're going to be able to close the gap to get more folk who need to be in these academic programs and in these career spaces actually in there. But until normalization occurs and we still have black professionals occupying these spaces where they are the first and or only and or one of a few, I wonder, what is being the representative like for them? 
What kind of support do they need? And how are they helping to close the gap? Let's get into it. With me in the conference room, I have my talented guest co-host for the day and a power history maker who I cannot wait for you all to meet. Let me introduce my guest co-host first. Joy Nicole Smith is a graduate of the Pennsylvania State University with a Bachelor of Science in Biobehavioral Health with honors. Woo woo, same as me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she also has a Master of Arts in Teaching from the University of Southern California. As a science, health, and technology educator, her goal is to encourage students to take joy in the learning process in the STEM subjects. She strives to connect students interested in STEM with professionals to broaden their career outlook and perspective. With varied international experiences, she founded The Joy of Learning in Bitburg, Germany, where she provides educational services to German and American clientele while encouraging them on their personal journeys. Joy, my friend, thanks so much for hosting this episode with me. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Now on to our featured trailblazer. Dr. Jamie Valentine Miller earned her bachelor's degree in physics from Florida A&M University and has a master's degree in physics from Brown University. In 2006, Dr. Miller became the first African-American woman to earn a PhD in physics from the Johns Hopkins University, where she studied the physics behind magneto-electronic materials and devices. From there, she joined the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, where she examines semiconductor patent applications for phase change memory, nanoscale memory, and spintronic devices. Dr. Miller is the founder of African American <laughs> Woman in Physics Incorporated, an organization that is dedicated to honoring the woman who paved the way, inspiring future physicists, and connecting with people interested in promoting diversity in the physics and other STEM fields. Dr. Miller. It's an honor to have you in the conference room. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. It's incredible to be on um, co-hosting this podcast with you, Dr. Miller. And so you are the first Black woman to receive a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University. At what point did you realize you were going to be the first? Can you tell us about that experience? I can. Um, I defended my dissertation in 2006 and I marched in graduation in 07. And I realized that I was the first probably in like 2010, way after I graduated. Uh, it just, nobody made a fuss about it. Nobody, you know, it's not something that most people are looking at. So people who are already professors aren't keeping tabs. Most of them are not keeping tabs on how many minority students have come to their department, particularly in a field like physics where many of them may have never had a Black PhD student or a Black colleague or a Black professor who taught them. Um, our numbers are pretty small, but they are increasing. Yes, I agree. And um, it's so interesting, Dr. Miller, to hear you say that you, you realized after the fact. So just to follow up on that, what was your first reaction when you when you realized this? I mean, I assume you weren't surprised because you said, as you said, the numbers are small. Um, but what were you thinking? <laughs> well, first I was thinking, wow, they should have been nicer to me. <laughs> 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 but I mean, you, as you know, grad school is grad school and it's tough on just about everybody. So I was it was more of like almost like putting a puzzle together when I realized it like, oh, OK. So one of the things that I did to try to encourage myself and encourage other people 
initially was just to keep a database and a very simple GeoCities-like website that had listed all of the Black women that I knew who had PhDs in physics. And at first, it was like, okay, I don't know all of them. But then after a while, it was like, actually, I do know just about all of them, or I'm within like two degrees of separation. And then as I looked at the list and the, the timeline, I was I realized that there was no person who had come from Johns Hopkins before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that oh. was kind of how that came along. A more surprising story came about when I realized that I was the first Black woman to get a degree in physics at any level from Brown University. That happened two years ago. Mm, wow. Because wow. I just assumed that they had at least had some undergraduate women come through. But they, um, when Jamel Watson Daniels finished her bachelor's degree, there was a huge celebration, rightly so, because she was she's amazing also. But she was the first black woman to get a bachelor's in physics at Brown. And I said, wow, well, if she's the first to get a bachelor's and we ha- they don't have any PhDs and I got a master's, that means that I'm the first to get any degree. Yeah. They should have been nicer yes. to me. <laughs> <laughs> that yes. is so interesting. That wow. I, First of all, I love that one of your first actions was to try to see how many black women PhD in physics you knew. And then that's so interesting that you just tracing backwards, um, you were able to find out that history about Brown too. It's obvious to me that you probably stuck out at Johns Hopkins University as a, a PhD student in physics. When you were there, did you think about um, how much you were sticking out? Did you encounter any experiences that made you really aware of being a Black woman? What was your overall experiences like as a student there? I'll just explain it by contrasting my experience at Brown versus my experience at Johns Hopkins. At Brown, most of the graduate students were in the social sciences. They had an outstanding Master of Arts in Teaching program, which was a one-year program. So most of the other Black graduate students were either in sociology or African-American studies or doing a Master of Fine Arts or Master in Teaching. At Hopkins, most of the Black graduate students were in chemistry and biology and material science and engineering. And so it was more of a feeling of camaraderie because if I said to them, I've been in the lab for two weeks and I haven't seen another Black face, they could look at me and say, yeah, I've been in the basement for a month. It's, you know, we should get coffee or something. So in that way, I, I didn't feel like I stuck out so much at Hopkins, um, more so at Brown. Okay. Also at, at Hopkins, undergrad, most of the undergrads are either engineering or pre-med. When I was there, it was like 65% were pre-med and 25% were engineering. But that means that they have to take physics. They, they have a bit of a respect for physics students and graduate students and TAs. And they, uh, they're a little bit nicer to us because they know, hey, this is the end of the MITA next month. So other than the fact that I was the only black person in the department after my first year, I don't really feel like I stood out because of race so much. Although I will say that everyone in my research lab was Chinese. My advisor was Chinese, and he had a dual appointment at a university in China. And so all the other grad students and most postdocs were all Chinese. So I did uh, I did take Mandarin for a little while. Mm, to, that's awesome. Try to hear what's going on around me. Yes. <laughs> so when and, you think- and did that encourage connection? 
Oh, I think it's good because my, my Chinese classmates and lab mates are awesome. Um, and they love to uh, help me with my, my tones um, and to make sure that my Mandarin was, you know, as good as I was, uh, as, I, as much energy as I would put into it, they would help me to, to be the best I could with it. Okay. That's awesome. Awesome. And Dr. Jamie, when you say you were the only black person in the department after the first year, are you including professors in that? Or were you able to connect with some black physics professors while you were at Johns Hopkins? Um, not in the physics department. Most physics departments don't have a black professor if they're not at HBCU. Many physics departments don't even have a woman if they're not uh, a teaching school or mm. at HBCU. But I was able to connect with black professors who were in other departments. Um, one of the people on my dissertation committee was uh, Jim West, the noted inventor who had just moved to Hopkins maybe in like 03. So uh, it was great to be able to work with him and get his feedback on my dissertation. He's in the electrical engineering department. But I, I said I was the only black person after my first year. My first year. So when I left Brown and I moved to Hopkins, one of the things I was looking for in a new school was I didn't want to be the only one. You know, I, I didn't want to go somewhere and feel like I didn't have a, you know, good camaraderie around me. Yeah. And so yes. I, I went to the, to the National Society of Black Physicists Conference. And Hopkins had a recruitment table. And so I talked to the students there. And those students were so happy. I was amazed. I was like, are you sure you're physics students? <laughs> there were, you know, white kids, Asian kids, black kids. There were two black guys who were fourth mm. years. And I was like, awesome. They're going to be in their fifth year. They'll be able to mentor me. I won't be the only one. I, I get to Hopkins. And in their fifth year, both of them left uh, without degrees for wow. their own reasons. Mm. Wow. And so um, I understand one of them was able to go on uh, later and, and complete his degree. And he was actually really a, a good mentor and friend to me because he ended up going to the patent office before I came to the patent office. And the other one, you know, he decided that he wanted to do something different. So there's just no, no guarantees that you won't be the only one in your department. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. If, if it's okay, I, I wanted to ask the question um, along your academic and career journey. Who encouraged you to press forward? I would have to say my biggest cheerleader is my mother, who has always believed that yes. I could do anything, even if she didn't understand what it was that I wanted to do. <laughs> she's always been the one who's like, you know, it, it's supposed to be hard. If it was hard, everybody would do it. So you just have to persevere and, and get through it. Um, but other than that, on the academic side, I you mentioned that I got my bachelor's at Florida A&M University, home of the Rattlers. And one of the things that yes. HBCUs do very, very well is they prepare their students to excel in the wider world. They help mm -hmm. you to understand that it's not always going to be like this where you're around 95% black people. You're going to go out into the world and people are going to doubt you. People are going to say, oh, you can't do it because it's never been done. And so I had a whole, I had a whole school of professors who were telling me, you can go out there and do anything that you set your mind to. Uh, in physics, we're lucky because I have the same textbooks that they're using at Harvard and at Yale. And so if you match the material in this textbook, it's the same material that they're getting at Caltech and at Berkeley. You can go on anywhere and do whatever it is you wish to achieve. That was really that, that, that spirit helped me to, to go out and apply to a bunch of top schools and feel comfortable that even though I didn't come from Harvard, that I could still succeed in these graduate programs. 
it just always really warms my heart to hear the experiences of people who went to HBCUs. Obviously, me and Joy attended the same, which is still, even though it's increasing in diversity, I think the Asian student population is the fastest growing, but it's still considered a PWI, predominantly white institution. And I mean, I won't speak for Joy, but I just know that wasn't my experience <laughs> as far as getting that type of advice from, from professors at large. Of course, we, we yes. have career counselors yes. would not. But Joy, would you feel this? So, anyway? uh-huh. so I, I would think, um, again, the people that you surrounded, your, surrounded yourself with was really essential. Of course, when we were in undergrad, you know, we had our pockets of community mm-hmm. with others that were um, students and also professors. But I think it, it all came down to just one mentor just made the difference in a predominantly white institution. So I always think back to, I'm sure we both remember, we know Miss Joyce Hobson yeah, King Joyce. and how much she that person for the both of she, <laughs> And she transformed that experience and also connected us to resources. But in general, being at an HBCU, when I hear it being shared, how they are preparing you for the world, um, I think it's definitely a bit different experience as coming from Penn State. So I love hearing it. Mm -hmm. I really do. That's awesome, Dr. Miller. (laughs) That kind of leads me into my next question, Dr. Jamie. When you were in your programs, either at Brown, Hopkins, or both, what type of career counseling or advice did you receive, if any? Well, um, I think the best advice I got was from my advisor who said, get a job. (laughs) He would not (laughs) let me schedule my dissertation unless I had a job. He would go over and over and say, oh, what will I tell your mother at graduation if you don't have a job? (laughs) So for me, I said, okay, I just need to get out of here. So I'm going to take this job that I have an offer for at the patent office. It's got eight months of pay training. And then I'll wait to hear back about postdocs, about other positions that I applied to. They, they have a very good career center there. And actually, I met the patent office representatives at a career event. They had special events just for uh, graduate students. And um, they had some events that were just for medical, just for STEM, that kind of stuff. But really, I was like, I just need to get a job. Just so happens that I was lucky enough that this was a perfect job for me. I actually had, had some uh, seminars on intellectual property. And, you know, it was interesting. But... In physics, we don't talk a lot about anything that's not academia. So if you're not going to go and do a couple of postdocs and then become an assistant professor, then honestly, the professors don't really have a whole lot of advice for you. Mm-hmm. And it's a little mm-hmm. bit frowned upon, but the truth of the matter is that less than half of physicists are going to be professors. The other half are going to go out and get a job somewhere. Did your mindset at any point in your your PhD program, did your mindset shift from wanting to go into academia to maybe wanting to go out into the real world, per se, and get a job? Or did you always see yourself not in the academic institution? No, initially, my goal was to be a university professor. So um, Mm -hmm. I'm university president after being a professor. I wanted to work my way up. But I saw how the Black professors both on Hopkins campus and Brown campus, were overworked for uh, activities and volunteer duties that were not necessarily a part of their tenure package. So they had to mentor the Black Student Union and the Black Engineering Group and the Black Grad Student Group, and they had to sit on all of the hiring committees because the committee needs to be diverse and you're our 
minorities and they were tired. They were overworked. And I said, and so that's part of it. One, there's going to be a lot of extra work that will be fulfilling, but that you may not, you know, necessarily get any credit for or appreciation. Two, the truth of the matter is that we have so few people in the STEM field that I would have to spend the rest of my life justifying my existence, saying, mm-hmm. I'm not just here because I'm Black. I'm actually super qualified. I actually know what I'm doing. And there will always be people who you can never convince that that's true. Oh, but I'm sure that she's just here because she's Black and a woman. I heard that my advisor told some of the other Chinese students, well, Jamie is your toughest competition. She's American. She's a woman. She's black. He was like, that's what he told them. He's like, you have to work twice as hard as Jamie and everyone else because she's got all these advantages over you. And I thought that was laughable because when you look around at physics departments, you see a lot of Chinese professors and grad students. And you don't see a whole lot of black people just, you know, standing around getting hired because they're black or a woman. Um, But I didn't want to have to spend the rest of my life feeling like my colleagues didn't think I was good enough. Only here because I was a black Mm. woman. And they don't make any money. And you end up doing like, is it like the average years for postdocs? It's like seven, eight years. You have to do two or three postdocs. Wow. Postdocs. Wow. Interesting, you know, the story about your advisor and how just really our experiences inform our perspective because you find it laughable, but I'm sure your advisor was dead serious. And maybe part of that is not having grown up in, and I'm assuming here, but maybe not having grown up in the American context, definitely not having grown up as a Black person in America. So I just find it so interesting how, how different perspectives can, can lead us to different assumptions that may or may not be true. Yes. So the next question Joy will take yes. was more about your career experiences, but I know you've been with the patent office for a long time. Yeah, I'll go for it. Um, Wow. Um, So just take us on your career journey. What were your first jobs? Um, We sort of talked a little bit about that, but in physical sciences. And what are some of your other experiences that you've had inside and outside of the lab? Okay. Well, my very first job, I worked at the Gallery Mall in Philadelphia at the candy Uh, store. Yes, (laughs) I'm from Philadelphia. You know exactly what I'm talking about there. Yes, I, I do. Mall, I took the subway everywhere. And I think that that helped me to realize that I definitely wanted to get some degrees so that I wouldn't have to work in retail because it wasn't for me. My When I left Philadelphia and went to FAMU, I was on a full scholarship that included four summer research internships at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California. So I spent four summers in the San Francisco area in the desert doing outstanding research, but um, I was like, okay, I don't think California is kind of my thing. So I knew that I wanted to be back on the East Coast. And then after I left, I went to Brown with the Hopkins and I had to get a job to graduate and I, I came to the patent office. And it was, it's, been, it's been a great experience. Um, it was good to have that first year because we had this extended training program to be able to decompress from the academic grind. Like mm-hmm. at Hopkins, if you don't know the answer, what do you mean you don't know the answer? You're supposed to have all the answers. You're supposed to know. And if you don't know, you better find out immediately because tomorrow they're going to ask again and you need to know the answer. At the patent office, we're the federal government. We're seeing mm-hmm. degrees from state colleges. Mm-hmm. And so I came in 
gangbusters. Like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be a professor, I want to make all the bonuses and get all the promotions and do everything I can to be, you know, number one top examiner. And I was maybe four months in and I was working on a case and it was almost five o'clock. And so our supervisor said, okay, you guys, you got to go, you know, go to happy hour or something. It's time to go. And I said, oh, I'm a little late and finish up this case. And he said, no. You may not work voluntary overtime. It is against our collective bargaining agreement. You need to go to happy hour. And I was just like, I don't understand. <laughs> I'm so confused. Sounds about right. But yes. it was a gift because having work-life balance is something that we should all have. And it's something that a lot of fields do not have that luxury. So now I take vacations. Mm-hmm. I use my holidays to, you know, do fun things. And I'm I'm yeah. happy that I have that work-life balance. One of the other things that one of the other great things about working at the patent office is we have a full-time telework program. So I'm here in sunny Florida, and I rarely have to go to my <laughs> DC office to my my path to the patent office. So when I got there, um, I did manage to get all the promotions as quickly as possible, and I moved up, and now I'm a primary examiner, which is the senior examiner. But I did decide not to pursue the management track which is kind of the next step from here. And I think my reasons for that, A, I don't think that they are well enough compensated for the amount of work that they have to do. And I'm pretty content, almost spoiled in my job position now. So I didn't see that it was a financial gain for the amount of stress that it would bring. No, I was thinking about that, just taking your sick days, um, getting rest. Um, Those are just some very important uh, dynamics to have, especially at work. Because most times we think work, 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 and then we'll get the result and then we can rest. But then we find out we're working even more. So to hear you as a, as a Black woman say, hey, I'm actually taking a break. I'm taking rest. I'm taking my days. It, it's really encouraging because most times, I'm sure, Mina, um, <laughs> we, we, we all just feel like we have to keep pushing, keep going, and we don't stop. And so that was an encouragement to hear. I agree with Joy and I, especially Dr. Jamie, I know you haven't shared this, but as a mother and a a spouse, and I just think it's really great that you've made these intentional decisions in your career. I mean, you're honestly a powerhouse. And, you know, I love what you said earlier about wanting a career where you didn't always have to prove yourself. And I think you've built that for yourself Mm -hmm. and you're doing things on your own terms. I did want to follow up to your earlier stories about your internships. When you were um, doing your internships out in California, were you able to connect with other students of color in the physical sciences? Yeah, so uh, the Livermore Lab, when I got there, had like 9,000 employees and they were bringing in hundreds of summer students every summer. They pledged six full scholarships my year to FAMU. And they had two physics majors two electrical and two chemical engineers. Might have been eight. Might have had also mechanical there. So there were six of us from FAMU. That first year, we didn't know each other because the summer internship was before our freshman year. But I mean, that, that worked out. And then across the bay at Berkeley Lab, so we connect with the other FAMU students that were there. Additionally, there were other students from other HBCUs who had come from, from all across the country. And there were Black students at PWIs. But almost all the PWI black students were graduate students, 
which was great because it's like, oh, I could be a grad student. Who? Tell me about your life. What do you do? So we would connect. We went camping in Yosemite. We did things that I don't usually do. And, you know, I had an open mind about those things. And I stay in contact with, with all the physicists. I'm still in contact because we have such a small community. So. I think it's really cool that you were able to see, even before your freshman year, you were able to see people of color in the physical sciences and the other sciences that were in graduate school because seeing, you know, in identity research, they're called possible cells. And so like the importance of having a possible self really can't be overstated. Mm. This question wasn't planned, but I have to know, Dr. Jamie, because all of these things you're talking about, how did you personally remain steadfast in, in your pursuit of, of the physics PhD, the degree at Brown, just your journey as a physicist? Well, that's an excellent question because there were certainly a lot of things that happened during my educational career that any reasonable person would have said, it's okay, like, you don't have to keep doing this. You didn't ask, but I'll, I'll volunteer that I left Brown because I could not pass the qualifying exams. I took them, I think, two, three times, whatever the max was, and I didn't pass. And so you have to leave. And so then I reapplied, and I was able to get into Hopkins, which, you know, was another really good school. But when I realized that I had to leave Brown, I talked with my research advisor, and he said, you know, I still think that you can be a great scientist. I see you in the lab, and, you know, you ask the questions. Some people aren't great test takers. Maybe it was just not the right year, but I'm willing to write strong letters of recommendation for you if you want to reapply to other schools and continue on. So I had that behind me. I reached back to FAMU and I heard from professors who were like, oh yeah, that happened to me. That's why I didn't graduate from UCLA. I transferred to, mm-hmm. you know, whichever the next school was. So it's like out that it happens quite often, at least in physics, that graduate students started one program and leave and finish somewhere else. Even Neil deGrasse Tyson started his PhD, I think, in Texas and graduated from Columbia or wherever it is he graduated from. And so I tell that story when I speak to students because I want them to know that one setback is not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have a setback, evaluate where you are, if you're doing what you're doing because you really want to do it, and then move forward. Learn from the experience and continue to push forward. Thank you for sharing that story. Just hearing you share that story, it makes me think of two things. One, what's meant to be will always be, because if you hadn't had that experience, you wouldn't have gone on to Hopkins and been the first Black woman to get a PhD in physics from Hopkins, which was really important for that moment to occur. And two, I failed my one of my comps the first time, too. And, you know, I graduated with a doctorate from an education and human development school. It happens and it's so important to share those stories so people know, you know, when these things happen, that they're not alone and that even though they may feel isolated, you know, there is always a tomorrow. It's not the end of the world, even though it does feel like it at the time. Joy, did you have anything you wanted to... You look like you had something to say. No, I'm just taking us all in. Um, I think what I'm I'm taking in is the common experiences um, that that we all have and it takes to listen and hear it to, to really know that, you know what, it's going to be okay. So I, I'm just taking in, I'm just taking in <laughs> and listening. So this is an encouragement. Yes. So Dr. Jamie, tell us about your organization dedicated to African-American women in physics. 
AAWIP Incorporated. AAWIP uh, it really came out of that that little spreadsheet GeoCities webpage that I had when I was at Hopkins because as we were able to talk with all the other you know Black women in physics across the country, it just became kind of a gathering place to be able to to say okay. I'm thinking about going to Stanford. Do you know anyone who went to Stanford? And then I could look at this page and say, oh, Deborah Jackson went to Stanford. You should talk to her and put people in contact. Since then, we met a lot of graduate students and undergraduate students who talked about how it kind of really inspired them. And, you know, they really loved the the website. So we've expanded it to become a, a nonprofit, mostly just so that we could take care of our website fees and, you know, conference fees and that kind of stuff. And right now, I think our biggest accomplishment is, I would say, it's the success of our private Facebook group. We have a, it's a, it's a small group, but people of all different, you know, levels, whether they're undergraduates or retired professionals, are in there and they're providing mentoring and experiences. They're talking about uh, job options and summer research. And uh, just last, last week, One of the young ladies posted that she was just so frustrated with her quantum mechanics class. And she was thinking about just, you know, like not paying for the test or dropping the class. And so I said, well, if you don't study, you're just going to have to retake the class. And then two other women chimed in and posted and said, trust me, sis, that happened to me. And I had to retake it. And I was so frustrated and it put me back. And so you get all of this like informal mentoring that goes on. And particularly when you have grad students who are at the same level, who are taking the same course spread all across the country, they don't have to feel like they're the only one all the time because now they have a group of, you know, 200 where they know there's three other grad students who are also taking that. And I think it really um, is making an impact for the students who are coming up. Yes. Thank God for networks like, like WIP in the use of technology like social media. So once where you may have felt isolated, and like you said, alone or like you were the only one in a particular field, now you don't feel that way. That common experience, collective experience. I also wanted to, to ask you, Dr. Miller, what steps can we take to further engage young African-Americans in exploring STEM-related career fields? I think the biggest thing we can do is continue to celebrate our wins. Mm-hmm. Children, you know, I forget, I forget who said um, you can't be it if you can't see it, but mm-hmm. they need to see that these options are out there. And also, we have to be cognizant of the fact that the careers of the future have no idea what they what they are or what skill sets will be needed to do that. No one in high school could have told me, "Oh, you could be a social media manager. You could be an influencer." You could be, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's so many things that are out there. Hopkins now has a center for nano, nanobiotechnology, mm-hmm. nanobioengineering, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it crosses between physics and engineering and medicine and bio. Broad foundation in a good STEM field is always going to be able to enable you to be flexible, to make changes and to switch fields as new fields come along. Okay. Uh, but mostly I, I work on making sure that Students, particularly here in Orlando, get to see my face and get to say, oh, I know what a physicist is. I've seen a physicist before. Mm-hmm. I love yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so this has been just an amazing conversation. It is time for the Dear Dr. A segment of the show. Dear Dr. A. 
I was at a team retreat along with about 10 of my colleagues, mostly women. The team members were from all over the world, Nepal, Indonesia, Toronto, etc. And it was my first time meeting a lot of them in person. The team manager was also there. He is based in Asia and I had only met him once before. Included in the retreat was a cafe-like one-hour session for people who were new to the team. All of the people in the cafe session were women of color except the manager and two other team members. This one team member, who happened to be a man and not a person of color, monopolized all of the manager's time in the session. Everyone was supposed to be asking questions and interacting with the manager, but instead this one person monopolized the entire hour. The manager didn't even try to get others to talk and he also had run right after the session. Afterwards, I spent all afternoon meeting with my colleagues one-on-one so they could get to know me and scheduling a virtual call with the manager just to get answers to my questions. It seemed so typical that the minority and the woman had to spend all day catching up and it really makes me wonder if what I faced was microaggression. I'll just start off by saying, you know, this, a situation like this sounds so familiar and, um, you know, it's really unfortunate. I think the best course of action would obviously would have been for the manager to step in and make sure that all of his team members had equal voice and a chance to ask their questions and express their concerns about being new members to the team. Obviously, that didn't happen. Kudos to you for kind of like our guest today, Dr. Jamie, taking the situation that you were given and making the best out of it by still um, getting to know your colleagues and even taking the initiative to set up that call with your manager. What do you ladies think? Well, I agree. The best situation would have been for the manager to not let any one person monopolize the call. I probably would have tried to inject politely, even though I'm sure it would have been perceived as like an angry black woman. But I would have tried to interject with something like, well, I just want to interject here because it seems like one person's kind of asking most of the questions, but I think, I, I know I have a question, so maybe we should let some of the other people have, you know, some time to, to get their questions in. And I probably would not have made one friend out of the speaker, but I might have made friends from the other mm-hmm. participants. Yes. I appreciate that answer, Dr. Jamie, because I think a lot of the reason I wanted to start this podcast is to give young Black professionals a space to bounce these ideas in these experiences of others who may have been in their shoes at some point in their careers. And I just remember the old, I'll just say this, the older I get in my career and, you know, and as a professional, the bolder I am to, mm-hmm. to, because I, I agree. I probably would have done the same thing because I'm just not going to sit there, you know, for an hour and not have a chance to speak. You know, I've been through too much. I'm too qualified. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not going to happen. So I think as we can share these experiences, as Joy said, the collective experiences and let people know, you know, yes. it's okay to speak up in a situation like that and give, mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and give voice, really giving a voice exactly to the others in the room as well. Joy, what say you? Yes. I would say the same thing. Of course, the manager, in terms of the responsibility to make sure all voices are heard across the table, that was essential. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. And so um, for the question or for the person who presented the question, you know, even though it could be perceived as rude interjecting, they would have given voice to the rest of the room. But again, there's that fine balance that we all, all take. 
mm-hmm. or we have to um, navigate. And so I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's, no, it's, it's we've been presented. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. And you're trying to be mindful. And, and again, kudos uh, to them for taking the initiative afterwards, but also knowing that your voice is pivotal. And so even in that interruption, that that could have changed the dynamic of the entire room. So those are some of my thoughts there. Yes. And I like to leave with this to the young lady who wrote in. After hearing this, may you have the empowerment you need in the future to just step in in the moment and not spend your precious time, you know, afterwards, even though it was probably the best action for you at the time. May you feel empowered in the future to, to take that moment and take your time back right then. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Joy, for co-hosting. You're awesome. Thank you. Hi, Amy, you're Good the best. Happens. You know, I love you. Thanks. <laughs> it's been awesome, but for now, I have to say goodbye, and we have to leave the conference room, but I'm sure I'll see you on the outside. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.